Special Agent Trisha Cannon of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation talks about that critical moment where the sex trafficking victim meets the suspect in the courtroom for the first time. We were very nervous. We didn't know which way it was going to go when she actually saw him. Um, but over the jail phone calls before she flipped on him, he would tell her what she had to wear to come to visitation. He would tell her like when to call and stuff like that. So we were really nervous that when she actually saw him in person, what would happen? Um, and she, she's a little feisty. So we were hoping that she could contain her emotions and be able to portray her story without being aggressive. Um, and she did a phenomenal job. Um, her dad also came and testified, which was great because when you look at the pictures, she didn't necessarily look like she was 14. Um, but having him there saying that this is my 14-year-old daughter really hit home with a lot of jurors. Welcome to Game of Crimes. And then you know what some of them bastards want to do, Steve? They want to charge you for the legal process in some places. And it's like, no, oh, yeah. I don't think so. You know, there was a time. Yeah. One thing I wish that they would do is you're making the report that there's contraband on your side. Why don't you just give us all the information up front so we can actually move forward as soon as we get that tip? It's getting with a judge, going to that jurisdiction, and then sending it off, and then waiting six months at least to get the information back. We're like... It's a never-ending door. <laughs> and the whole time, the the child is being the child is being exploited during that whole waiting process. Yeah. Well, here's a here's a quick history lesson. So remember when AOL, you know, America Online used to be really big. They were located here in Loudoun County. Their headquarters were. Guess what? The Loudoun County Sheriff's Office had one or two guys assigned to doing every single day, doing nothing but taking legal process that was being filed from other jurisdictions and going down to AOL and serving it on them. That's how bad it. Just with AOL, it was you. You, you tied up two deputies or two de detectives that all they did was legal process every single day, you know, to get it down there. So, and that's only multiplied. You know, I mean, you know, AOL now is you know is a is a chapter in a book that's long since passed. But now you've got, like you say, thousands and thousands of apps. So, let's talk now. Now we've kind of set the stage for everybody. Let's start talking about this case because before, but but before we talk about this case, let me just let everybody know real quick too is that. You were recognized for this. Is why this case is so important, folks. So the way I found out about this, and the way I found out about Trisha, is like I say I'm a huge fan of the NICMEC and the Center for Missing Kids. So she was recognized as one of the heroes of 2021 by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Kids. And let me set the stage. Let me just read the quick commendation because this is going to set the stage. So basically, after finding a suspicious advertisement on a website known for human trafficking, this is how you got involved. You knew you had to rescue that girl. I don't want to give the rest of the story away because we want to set it up. So let's start talking about this case. And let's um, – to make it easier for folks um, – Let's just, you know, if you can, let's just use the first name, you know, um, you know, we don't need to get into that. Right. But um, this involved a, a young girl um, that was obviously being exploited. So let's talk now about how you got involved in this case. What was the origin of the case? So in May 2016, I um, was assigned a case that came in through the Department of Juvenile Justice. Um, they had received information from a community employee who assist them with, you know, 
keeping track of, you know, different children in the system or who are on probation just to ensure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, But they had um, observed a female, we'll call her JC. Um, They observed a female JC who was a part of this Baldwin County High Intensity Team Supervision um, teams because she was on probation. Um, they observed her on Backpage.com. And let's stop there for a second. So when they say they observed her, one of the things that these uh, uh, the staff did was anybody who was under their supervision, they would go and look on these places like that to see if they were being trafficked. And so we really got to give kudos to this person who took the time to go through and, and identified that, right? Because, and, and tell everybody too, I know Backpage has made the news. Uh, let's talk about Backpage too, what it was at that time. Backpage is kind of like Craigslist on steroids is like what we like to say. Well, it's Craigslist for sex and trafficking and prostitution and stuff. Yeah, and that was its main purpose. Um, I know they claim not to do that but and that they're against trafficking, but that was essentially its main purpose was to um, provide sexual advertisements for individuals to purchase sex from females. and I would say probably majority of them were being trafficked to do that. I'm sure there were some who were doing it on their own to make money. However, I do believe that the majority were being trafficked, um, majority against their will. Um, and essentially they would place, um, ads stating, you know, 15 minutes for 40 bucks or, you know, and that would be like a quick visit or they would say if you're requesting something specifically um, and everything's done by donation, nothing's done by an exact price. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they would say, you know, whether it was an in-call or out-call. So it just all depends. And how old was JC when she came to these people's attention? 14. Oh, when she came to their attention, like initially, I believe she was 12, or, well, and then she came through Backpage when she was 14 years old. Okay. And just to let you know how reputable of a firm Backpage is in spite of all their denials, because I, I know a lot about these guys because I've had to talk about it on the news before, but you can actually go type Backpage.com or Backpage.net, and guess what pops up? And affiliated websites have all been seized as part of an enforcement action by the FBI, the Postal Inspection Service, the IRS, Criminal Investigative Division, you know, et cetera. All of those domains have been seized. That's how reputable Backpage was yeah. for what was going yeah. on. And that's, 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 that was buckets. one of the, I mean, that's a huge seizure to this day. If you type in that, that domain, and I encourage you to go do it, backpage.com, backpage.net, you've got the seizure site that pulls up. So, so this thing was nothing more than a bunch of scumbags making money off of, of running a, like you say, and I don't even want to use Craigslist as the example, because Craigslist, they had some, they had some stuff right too, but Backpage was really zeroed in on ex- exploitation. Yeah, and the thing with Backpage was is when Backpage was up and running, that was one of the um, platforms that we used during our undercover operations to um, arrest people who were out seeking to have sex with children. Yeah, you, you did stings basically using Backpage to set, set, you know, Chris Hansen to catch a predator, you know, type of thing, you know. And we always made sure that they were fully aware that we were 14 years old and even sometimes we went younger, and if they were willing to show up to have sex with a child, I mean, nah, I just. <laughs> oh, how, how, 
How do you not beat somebody like that with a stick? See, as a father, I would say, hold my beer, guys. No arrest needed here. Just just start calling the ambulance. Yeah. I'd bash the beer up against their head. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, well, that's mm, our redneck okay. showing. So let's, <laughs> as a, <I> know it. <laughs> let's get back to our regularly scheduled podcast about our host of honor, our guest of honor here. So, um, so we, you get this referral. How does that referral come to you? Does it go through the tip line or is it direct? Do they, do they work with you and they call you directly? So, um, department of juvenile justice actually called my supervisor directly, um, because we do work closely with them with these cases. Um, but they called him directly. My supervisor at the time was Brian Johnston. He was the ASAC and actually he's now the one who is our, um, special agent in charge. He's awesome. He's great. Um, and he was like, you know what? Wait, hey, you we- keep you keep saying that. Are you coming up <laughs> for a review or something? As you got your <laughs> yeah, yearly review time. <laughs> I want to make sure that people understand. Like our unit is like we are so close. We're so it's definitely like a family, and we just I can't give credit to everybody who is a part of it because we all work together, and it literally I would not want to work anywhere else good for you in spite of Very your good. yearly review coming up you know next oh, no, month I so. had that back in july i'm good <laughs> oh you're good okay <laughs> I got six more months. okay so uh so let's talk about this now so you get the re- you get the uh, referral in how do you work a case like this what are your steps in this case so i immediately reviewed all the information that um was provided as far as like the back page ads that i had a screenshot of from djj um and, and what was being what was being said over the ads? You know, if you remember, uh, you know, as specifically as you can. I have one of the ads pulled up. I can actually read it specifically to you. One of the ads said, "When the door opened, there is no disappointment. One hundred percent real pictures. Very down to earth, easygoing, open minded, upscale and professional and discreet. No rush. No police or law enforcement. No block calls. Available twenty four seven. Stop what you're doing and call." Roxy Rose. And that was JC at age 14. Well, mm. supposedly that was her. That was her writing because, you know, she posted herself. But that was. Oh, she really did. No, that was somebody else who posted it for her. But that's what I mean. Uh, but but, bas- but okay. basically, they, that whoever wrote that, that's, that ad was specifically for JC then, right? That's correct. Again, and I know what you're getting at before, too, where you say you kind of had, you have to just have two sides of your mind. One is the emotional side, but one is just the clinical investigative side. You got to be able to park the emotional feelings while the investigative side, you know, just works on it. And uh, when you got this, was there anything initially that stuck out to you? Like this is, um, was this a, a new type of case? Had you seen this before? Was there anything different about this? Or was this one of those things to where you've seen the playbook before? And this is how these people exploit these kids. Truthfully, when I first started, um, my initial thought was, is no child wakes up, especially at 14 years old and says, I'm going to be a prostitute today. Like, I don't know anyone that wakes up and just decides that. So I knew, um, this was not, I, I knew that this was going to be a reality situation for a 14 year old. And I also knew um, very early on after talking with the local police department that JC was the prime, I hate to say it, but she was the prime victim. Um, she, she lacked the supervision. She was getting in trouble um, and she was starving for that love. Um and she just was the prime victim. And I knew 
no matter what was ever going to be said, I knew that this was a reality. What was her family situation at the time? So she lived at home with um, her grandparents, her mom, and her little brother. Um, mom traveled for work Monday through Thursday. Uh, grandmother's mentality was, I raised my kids. I am not going to raise my grandkids. Dad, oh. um, mom and dad were divorced or not um, together anymore. And I believe that dad had more rules and was more strict and she didn't like it. And I think there was also some turmoil between mom and dad. So, um, she didn't really have anything to do with her dad. Mm. Yeah. So he was, when he was with her, he was trying to be a parent, mm -hmm. but she, and she knows so much like easier it. on the other side, on the mom's side. Yeah. Um, she actually had 14 <laughs> police reports that she was involved in, um, ranging from truancy, fighting, running away, being unruly, and stealing her mother's car. Well, you know, I've got two daughters, two sons, and five granddaughters. I don't want to raise my grandchildren either. I, I kind of sympathize with the grandparent on that point. But look what results when you just turn a blind eye or you refuse to take responsibility. Just because I'm older doesn't mean, you know, that you don't still have some responsibility to help children grow up the right way. This is certainly not the right way. And I understand, like, you know, I'm a single mom, so I understand the working, um, and I understand, you know, having to be out of town or working, you know, Monday through Friday out of town. I understand, um, but I think that you need to set rules, guidelines, boundaries early on, as early as you can, um, to have that, you know, your child understand and know what's right, what's wrong, um, whether you're there or not. You know, when I'm not around my daughter, she knows what she's supposed to do. She knows right from wrong. Um, but that's also on the parent to instill that and not just say, I'm working. I can't deal with it. I got to move right. on. Right. And I'll bet your children know what the consequences are going to be if they don't live up to mom and dad's expectations, right? Yes. They're going to have to walk around wearing an Alabama shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you didn't think I was oh, going to let that cold. go, did that's you? Cold. Okay, I know, cold. <laughs> you guys you guys, be good or I'm going to make you walk through the neighborhood wearing Alabama yelling, roll tide. Yeah, that is, you, that you won't go you good, good, yeah. Might get you hurt in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so... Um, you get this case. So now let's start working through the investigative stuff. So you've got these ads, you start seeing this stuff. Um, how does a case like this get handled? How do you work it? Um, so right off the bat, I wanted to interview uh, JC. Um, and based on what I've heard or during that time heard, um, she had a very hard exterior. Obviously she was, you know, she had some, Issues with authority and law enforcement. Um, and so I knew I had to go in there and build a rapport with her and show her I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. Um, so immediately with, I think it was like three days later, I immediately went and um, interviewed her while she was at the regional youth detention center. And she was in the regional youth detention center because she got in trouble for stealing her mom's car. Um, and so she was committed to the state. And this is while the ad is active on back page? Yes. So is she, so where does the, uh, is it only through email or is there a phone number? I've, I forgot what was in the ad. How do you, how would, how would anybody contact her? 
so through the ad, it was posted through an email address, Carletto, Carletto Clemens at gmail.com. Um, it was a Sprint IP address, which means we're not going to get anything from it. Uh, usually uh, wireless IPs don't give us any info unless we have a port number. Um, and then the initial ad um, had um, two phone numbers, none of which were JCs. They were two unknown numbers at the time initially. Um, ad two, three, and four had two phone numbers, which was one from the original ad and JC's number. And then ad five only had uh, JC's phone number. Total of five ads over what period of time? April 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 13th. So one, one, a different ad for each day. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, were they getting taken down or what was happening? No, with Backpage, um, you have to, I guess, re-up your ad or post another ad in order for it to be at the top of the list during that time. So say I post an ad and 10 other people, then mine moves down the list. And so you just want to keep it active and fresh. So you want to keep either, you know, pay for it. But if you don't want to pay for it, in this case, they didn't pay for it. You just have to post another ad about every 24 hours. So, and what's really interesting is she, this all started based on an interview, which was learned later on, um, around Easter 2016, which was, um, I believe it was like March 26th, um, and April 18th, she went to court and was put in RYDC. So all of this happened within a three week time span. And I know we're going to get into it because we don't want to give away because we only want to talk about what you know right now. So what you know right now is, you know, you've got a victim, which is JC. You've got an email address. So but obviously, do you well, the chances of her prostituting herself out are, are fairly slim, right? So there's obviously somebody else involved in this. What are what are your next investigative steps? You got the email and you say you talk with her, right? Is that the next big uh, activity in the case? Yeah, the next big activity was actually conducting the interview because I wanted to see if she would be willing to talk to me or tell me who, what was going on, what happened, who was involved um, in that aspect of it. So, yeah, talking to her was the next big step. Did she know before you showed up that this had been reported? Was she aware that it, it was law enforcement was involved? No, she did not. So I was a big surprise when I showed up at detention Let's talk about your strategy for doing that. Cause you know, like you say, a lot of times it's not that it's a one shot deal. Um, suspects can tell you to go pound sand. I want a lawyer, but when you're a victim, I mean, you don't want to overdo it, but you can keep coming back. There's not that same legal protection like there is with the suspect. So what's your strategy going in? What, what do you think about doing and how are you going to approach this? So I really had two options is I could have, um, gotten her a forensic interview where someone who is trained specifically into talking to kids, but just looking at the ad, looking at the police reports, I did not know if that was going to be a good idea. I felt that she needed to be interviewed by somebody who was going to be a constant and who was going to keep coming back. And while we have great forensic interviewers and they're always willing to help, it's almost like we needed it to be more consistent and I didn't want to have to continuously say, Hey, I need a forensic interview. Hey, I need a forensic interview. I felt that I could build that rapport with her. Um, and 
show her that I was going to be there since I was working the case. Um, and I knew the dis different aspects or would know the different aspects of the case throughout. So let's let's talk about forensic interview real quick, because back in the days, like when I was doing it, you know, Murph was doing it when I was teaching it. I mean, we would teach interview and interrogation behavior analysis. And that's like you go in, you're talking to normally, you know, somebody who's a suspect in a case that's committed a crime and not so much a victim. And forensic, like you say, forensic interviews are very helpful because you have to you have to specialize, especially in interviewing younger children or children who are victims of crime because you have to guard against, you planted that thought in their head, you suggested something, right? So there's, you got to be very careful. What, what in this sense, what would a forensic interview, what, what do forensic interviews do for you? When would you use them and, and what are they as compared to regular interviews? I think with forensic interview, I think had she been younger, um, it would have been better. Um, they have to do a lot of open-ending questions. They also don't know a lot about the investigation, um, and sometimes with doing forensic interviews, the investigators also looking for additional information if something has happened. In this case, I knew something had happened. I had the back page ad. I had her pictures. Um, so I had that information where in a forensic interview, if that child doesn't bring up anything, they can't bring it to their attention. Where I had this information, and I wanted to bring it to her attention. Um, so they couldn't bring that to her. Let's talk about your first meeting with her. How does that go? How do you set it up? What do you do? Because you're already smiling. It, it didn't go well, <laughs> did it? <laughs> so it was very difficult um, getting information and talking with a juvenile who's in their uh, regional youth detention center. It's a process. Um, you have to fill out paperwork. You you know, have to... Do they have what's called a guardian ad litem at that time? So at this time, no, uh, not for her, but they do use those. Um, and because she was a victim and not the subject, I think that's another reason why there wasn't one necessarily present because I made it very clear that she was not in trouble with me. Um, she was not a suspect. She was not going to get in trouble. I was not going to charge her. I just wanted to speak with her. Um and, you know, during that time, you know, I learned about her home life and what was going on. Um, she told me that she loved to take selfies of herself. Um, I do know that um, she did have social media. She did have a Facebook and a Kick account. Um, and later on, I learned about a Snapchat account. But um, she had to meet with her probation officer two times a week, usually on Mondays and Wednesdays. Um, she first came to the Spalding County Probation Hits Program in January 2015 and came off of it in July 2015. Um, then school started back. She started getting in trouble again um, for fighting at school and truancy and just um, kind of being like an unruly juvenile that she was put back on the Hits Program in January 2016. Um, I learned that she was committed to the state because of the um, stealing of her mother's car, which was the most recent act um, that she had gotten in trouble for. And um, they were trying to decide whether or not she would go to a group home or go to back home with her grandparents. I asked her and confronted her about Backpage, um, and she had no idea what Backpage was. She was in complete denial. 
Now, is that, was that really true? She didn't know what it was, or was that just an act she was putting on for you? Um, it was definitely an act that she was putting on for me. Okay. She, um, she, she's very good at, I guess, lying or telling you what you want to hear. Um, so she did not want to get anyone in trouble. And she actually admitted to me later on that she lied and said that she didn't know anything about it because she didn't want to get anyone in trouble. Did you believe her at the time or did you go, no, I don't believe you, but I'm not going to let on that. I don't believe you. So I did not believe her um, because I had the actual ad that she was posted on and I knew that they would have to get those pictures some way. Um, and with them being posted so frequently, I knew that she, she knew about it somehow. Um, but obviously I did not let her know that because I wanted her to feel that, you know, I was there for her. I trusted her and it wasn't another situation where I just didn't believe her. Um, I needed to build a strong rapport with her. Um, and she also told me that her mom would go through her cell phone, which I also knew wasn't true, but her mom would go through her cell phone. Um, so she couldn't have back page, even if she knew what back page was. And you know, the sad part is, is that by 14 is that they have become so accomplished at manipulation and deceit and lying. And you go, it just, you're right. I mean, if you don't intervene at that time, if there's no intervention, if they do that at 14, what will they do at 16 and 18, you know, and 21? I mean, that's such a, that was one of the hardest things when you're going, you know, I'm sitting and thinking in my mind, talking to kids sometimes like that going, you are so good at lying. Where did you learn this? She had been in trouble, I think, so many times and that she just, I, I think she was just tired. I think she was tired um, of always having to be involved with law enforcement. I think she thought that she was an adult um, and that I think she just wanted to be left alone. And she, I think her thought was, if I don't say anything, this chick's going to leave me alone. And I told her every interview, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be right here. So you're just going to wear her down through kindness and smiling and <laughs> yes, but you know what? Now you're, you're somebody that might actually do what they say they're going to do in her life. That's, that's what I'm getting from this. And Truthfully, to skip ahead a little bit after trial, she told the victim advocate, she goes, Trisha told me from the get go, she wasn't going anywhere and she wasn't lying. She was there the whole time. Now, did you bring her a gift basket of any kind? Or did you ever bring, you know, like, especially like if she's in detention? I'm not being flippant. I'm saying like, I know that you talked about doing it with the kids. Did you, were you able to bring her anything or just give her some basic necessities or were you allowed to do that at all? Um, I did not do that because I'm initially with her being RIDC, obviously there's, you know. She's pretty well taken care of yeah, anyway yeah. in there. And I, I couldn't bring anything into the RIDC. And then the same thing when she was later transferred to the group home, I couldn't do anything. They, everything was regulated as far as what they could have and what they did and stuff like that. Um, and I didn't want to interfere or cause any additional either issues with the other kids there that would, you know, hurt or anything like that. Or get some defense attorney to say, you bribed her, you gave her stuff so that she would say this kind of stuff against the defendant, my clean cut upstanding defendants that we'll talk about here in a little bit. So, Well, and that's also the other flip side is at some point I'm a human, I have a heart, you know, and if I see a kid that needs something, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you're doing, 
I will help that kid. Um, and I would, uh, at some point, you know, hopefully if it ever comes to a point, you know, the jury will understand that, I mean, a 14 year old can't provide for herself. She don't have a job. She, she can't buy, you know, food or, you know, anything. If it's a necessity, I think, uh, I'll take the fall for that because it's a child. It's not somebody who's making money and out there on, you know. It's not a young adult. People confuse it's child. They're not young adults. They're still kids. At 14 years old, you're they're kids, right? So yep. speaking of kids, so you, you like you say, you, you are just like a – <laughs> you're just like a bad habit. You're not going away. So you're there yeah. the whole time. How does this progress over time? When do you start getting your initial breakthroughs that actually give you some investigative leads, investigative options that you can take advantage of? Um, so initially it was very hard because during that interview, she swore up and down that she never committed any kind of like sex acts or anything. Um, and I wanted to, I, I needed to know what happened. Um, so, she did at the, towards the end of the interview, after I told her about, you know, what happens if she did get into the sex life? Um, she did let off that she had, she had met a guy named Tez, um, which it will get very confusing with Tez. Well, and Tez is spelled like what? T-E-Z? Tez? T-E-Z. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and it turns out that there were two Tezes and that's how she knew them was by Tez. Um, so figuring out who, the two Tezes were, was absolutely insane. And what was the original email address on that first ad? Carletto Clemens, which turns out to be like a fake email. Um, we ran Intel on Carletto and Clemens and we came up with nothing. Um, however, we did notice that the email address Carletto Clemens at gmail.com um, through Facebook during this time, like Facebook, if you typed in the email address or phone number, excuse me, it would pop up a um, pop up with a profile where they don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, so during that time, we found that there was a link or a correlation between the Carletto Clemens and an individual named Ahmed Cortez Clemens. So that's the reason I asked this, because now we have there's a potential link because you say Tez, Tez can be a you know, can be short for Cortez or, Nickname. you know, like that. Oh, yeah. So now we're now, now this is this, see, this is where my blood. Now we're starting to get somewhere. Now we're starting to connect some dots. So yes, continue on from um, there. S.A. Cannon. So, so initially all she said that she met a guy named Tez who talked about making fast money and that she had no idea what it was. And she um, was not going to essentially sell her body for sex. Um, so we did legal process or I did legal process to back page, um, for, um, like similar ads relating to Carletto Clemens or the ad that was posted that I had an actual screenshot of. Um, and through the legal process, I got 10 additional ads, um, five of which were ads of my, of JC and five ads were almost identical to her ads that were posted in West Virginia um, with the same phone number. I'm surprised that they cooperated in the... Uh... Oh, Backpage was super law enforcement friendly during this time. Oh, really? Where, where do you serve the papers on them at? So all they requested was a subpoena, um, and we sent it to back to them. Um, and I'll tell you, hold on. They're a U.S.-based. Yes, uh, they are U.S.-based, right? and I think they were in Texas. 
Um, yeah, they were in Dallas, Texas, and we just served it to Backpage.com. Okay. Um, so there was 10 ads total. And I read an example of the ad earlier, um, and one of the ads, it said that she was 20 years old. She Her name was Roxy Rose. Donations or roses, it was $45 for 15 minutes, $60 for 20 minutes, and $80 for 30 minutes. Um, and that she could do in-calls or out-calls. Um, but these ads were identical to the ads that were posted in West Virginia. They were posted by the same um, email, and I believe it was both posted th- through Sprint PCS. And and er, a little bit earlier, um, you were talking about um, why Backpage was super law enforcement friendly at that time. Why were they super law enforcement friendly at that time? I think because they knew that they were doing things wrong. Um, but literally, I would send a subpoena and I'd get the information back very quickly. Um, also, they only requested that we send a subpoena versus a search warrant. Search warrant, which is a far more um, time-intensive, judicially intensive process, yes. right? A, sub- a subpoena you can get by just going down and saying, I need a subpoena. Search warrant, you got to go before a judge, present facts and evidence, right? It's much easier. And luckily for us, so we have admin subpoena powers for child exploitation, so I fill out our subpoena template, fill it out with the information I need, um, and then we send it up to our deputy director who then signs it. It goes to our AG's office prior to COVID and prior to us getting 16,000 cyber tips a year. Um, it was a much faster process, so I was able to get it within a day or so. Um, and then Backpage almost immediately would send us back with the information we requested. Yeah, because there's another thing, too, is that um, is a technique you do because things are so fluid with stuff. A lot of times you've got to let the process work, but you have to file like a preservation notice. So you have to send them and say, we are interested in this. Do not delete this stuff. Don't do because what will happen is over a period of 15, 30 days, whatever, logs get overwritten. Information gets overwritten because they can't store it forever. So you've got to be very proactive. So, yeah. And And then the other part to that now is, is everyone discloses to the user. Um, so now we have to do a non-disclosure order, put it within our preservation order and within our search warrant just so they do not disclose to the user. Yeah. Cause it'll affect an ongoing law enforcement operation, you know, could, and cause the other thing too is with somebody like JC, it could, could affect the, her safety if they found out that somebody was looking for this. So you get this information back. So now take us on a journey from here. Where do we go? So again, I then started running Intel. Um, Carlotta Clemens, we didn't find anything on. He didn't exist. We started running Intel on Ahmed Clemens. Um, and from there, we learned that he um, lived in like Montezuma, Fort Valley area, um, which is in South Georgia, about an hour and a half or so from Griffin. Um, so a reasonable distance. Um, and that we believe that they were similar because the Carletto Clemens was more of a tattoo um, artist website and Ahmed Cortez Clemens actually um, performed tattoos of other individuals. I had received her cell phone from his her dad um, when she was taken to court. Um, they took her electronic devices from her and dad had it. We forensically previewed the device and turned out that it had been factory reset. Um, so I called dad and I was like, what in the world happened? Why is the phone reset? I thought, you know, there was information on it. And he said her phone was going off like crazy. 
um, and that he had set up dates with other individuals at a hotel and actually met them. Um, and whoa, he was whoa. Trying- oh, look, <laughs> rewind a little bit. So dad, dad went on a vigilante kick. He was meeting these folks. He had met with one at a hotel um, and informed him that he, the John was meeting his 14 year old daughter. Was there any uh, <laughs> violence? No violence, but I told him he needed to stop. <laughs> You're going to hinder my investigation. Um, and he said that he had, he thought by factory resetting the phone, he would then be able to access more of her Facebook page and more of her accounts. Which is obviously not the case. There's a reason they call it factory <laughs> reset. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we learned that and I told him that he needed to stop. Just let me do my job. <laughs> I promise I will get Why there. didn't he come forward with that? Um, I think he thought he was going to get in trouble, but he had been in touch with Griffin Police Department and had talked to them. But I think maybe there was a miscommunication or mis. Um, because all of this was happening so fast and trying to get as much information as quick as possible that we just weren't right on top of it. But that goes with how many cases are you handling at this time? How many tips are coming in? I mean, you're just, I mean, it's the fire hose. I mean, you got two fire hoses, you know, forwarded at you. So, all right, so continue on your journey. So you got to kind of rein dad in a little bit, say, you know, whoa, dad, we know, <laughs> look, and as a father, I, I, I'm like Murph, there might've been violence involved. You get something to the, Hey, um, ambulance yeah. needed room 204, you know, the, the, the super eight motel, you know, su- subject There's fell off the rail. Assault. <laughs> yeah. There's about to be an assault. Uh, hey, guess what? This guy hit himself in the face 14 times with the two by four. Could tried to stop him. <laughs> I was shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're we're being flipping about it, but we can be because, it, you know, as a father, my youngest is a daughter. You know, I, I sit here going, except for, you know, the grace of God, there go I, you know, and I'm going, I would have, I don't know what I would have done in that position, but um, you get the father to slow down. What happens, you know, continue on with the investigation. So we're constantly sending legal process. Every time we get something new or new intel, I'm sending legal process for, you know, like subpoenas for the Facebook accounts to get their log information, their account information. Um, and because we made the connection between Carletto Clemens and Arme Cortez Clemens, <clears throat> I requested a um, subpoena to see if they were actually related, same phone number, same name, whatever. Um, and actually, none of the information matched up. Um, so I was like, okay, maybe there really is a Carletto Clemens and I'm just, maybe I'm in the wrong state. Maybe, maybe this person is here or how can I find them? Um, I then did a subpoena for Carletto Clemens, um, for the Gmail account. Um, and the IP address all came back to T-Mobile. And at that time, I don't know that T-Mobile and Sprint were the same. So I'm like, well, that doesn't match up. Um, everything I kept running into everything, nothing matched up exactly. Um, but there was a secondary email of Cortez Clemens for the Carletto Clemens. So I was like, okay, you know, maybe it is our men. I mean, there were so many, it was so unsure. Um, and I wanted to make that definitive connection. So I had learned that, um, JC was moved to a group home, uh, I believe in July 2016, she was moved to a group home. So once I found that out, I kind of gave her a week or two to settle in because I knew that's not where she wanted to go. I knew she wanted to go back home with her mom and grandmother. Yeah, but based on prior history, that didn't seem like a good choice for her. 
No, no. Not at all. Um, and so here we actually have group homes that specialize in uh, commercial sexual exploitation of uh, children victims. So we do have special placement for them. Um, they provide education, they provide therapy, counseling, group sessions, um, structure, which a lot of them are not used to. Um, so I found out that she had moved. Um, so I went out there and set up an arrangement to meet with her. Um, and she began to tell me that she didn't want to provide me much information when she was in RYDC because, uh, Tez was actually putting money on her books, which was allowing her to do things in, um, RYDC. Wait a minute. The um, guy that was pimping her out, that was trafficking her was also sending her money while she was in detention. Yes. Yes. And if you've ever had to try to get through, um, I was going to say getting, yeah, I mean, you've got to provide all sorts of ways to track you down. Right. I mean, they just don't let, did that, I mean, did that come to your attention at that time or did that only come in later? Um, so it was at that time, however, because she's a juvenile getting those records from RYDC was very difficult. And, um, it, I never actually ever obtained those records. How come? I mean, you would, I, I get it, but it's not about the juvenile. It's about the people. She is a victim, obviously, in a trafficking case. She's been sexually trafficked. How, why was it just, is it the Georgia laws or is it RDIC policy because the detention center policy? Because I got to think is that's, that's not, that is not protected. I mean, I wouldn't think of that as being protected juvenile information about the juvenile itself. It's about somebody who's funding the juvenile. You would think that, um, but I was in contact with several people and nobody ever could give me a definitive answer of, hey, this is what you need to do. This is where you need to send it. Um, it was always like, oh, it's a juvenile. Like we can't give you that information. Um, and I'm like, I need this information. This is pertinent, pertinent to my investigation. Um, Had you gotten that information after, at the time, how much time off of the case would that have saved you? Not much. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, truthfully, not a lot. It would have just proved um, that aspect of him putting money on her books. Um, and I believed I had him identified, but the problem throughout the whole investigation is it she never disclosed any sexual encounters. Um, and she was so, uh, she continuously retracted her statements of what she said, like an interview before, which isn't uncommon. It depended on if she had contact with him, if she didn't have contact with him, um, on what she was going to tell me. And then the fact that I had IP addresses, cell phone numbers, and a person named Tez, it was hard to show that this person was the one doing the trafficking. Do you think that uh, he was coaching? Do you think, first of all, that she told him that you were coming around? And second of all, that he's coaching her on what to say? So she told me the very, so I did six interviews with her. And on the sixth interview, um, she told me that she had told him the first time I ever went to RYDC that I was looking for him. Um, but she didn't give me any information about him, but I was looking into the information and then after that, um, she said that she never told him anything about me looking into it. She just said that she never told anything about what happened during her exploitation. So you think that, that 
she lied about telling him, telling you that she told him? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you would think if she had told him, he would he would have dumped her like a hot potato, you know, thinking that you're getting close. Yeah. I, I think there was definitely some lying going on. Um, but I also think that she legit, legitimately was in love with him. And, of course, he's not legitimately in love with her. He just views her as oh, another, no. you know, as a cash, uh, you know, cash infusion. Um, were you able to, through the interviews and uh, or anything at that time, were you able to confirm the fact that she had been sexually exploited, sexually trafficked? Or did, did all you have was the ads to go on at that point? I think it was like end of 2016, beginning of 2017, when I got some information about being exploited. But I was informed that she did it herself. That she, what do you mean? She was the one that initiated it. She was the one, he had no idea what she was doing. He just transported her. Well, that's a load of horse shit if I ever heard one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because everybody picks up a 14-year-old and drives them around. Who's sophisticated enough to have multiple email addresses and phone numbers and put ads on back page, yeah, and uh, handle money and everything else. She did tell me that during, I believe it was the third interview, she did tell me that he drove a black Audi. He picked her up in a black Audi. Um, And... Once I believed I had ID'd him, he had a black Audi registered in his name, and the phone number from the ad was actually his phone number listed on the driver's license as an emergency contact. So we're getting, so you're starting to, so the noose is starting to tighten. I mean, you're starting getting a better idea. How new was this? In other words, let's talk about maybe how much money is being made here. How new was this Audi? Was this an old piece of shit, or was this like a fairly decent, uh, you know, newer Audi? It was a nice Audi. <laughs> So we know somebody's making money doing something, right? Absolutely. Yes, and we actually learned that um, later on when doing cookie data through different accounts of his, that he and his mom owned a trucking company. And uh, don't gloss over that cookie data. We're not talking about cookie recipes, you know, or cookie dough. So um, cookies, I think a lot of people hear about cookies now because it's about tracking you and stuff. But when you got this cookie data, what information did that give you? How were you able to track that and determine uh, these other things? So cookie data was is more recent than when this case initially started. It wasn't something that a lot was talked about or a lot of people knew about. Um, so the cookie data came literally right before trial in 2019. Um, but what cookie data does is if I were to access, say, this Gmail account, if I access this Gmail account through my cell phone, I then log out and log into another Gmail account. That email account, those two email accounts would be linked through cookies through devices. That my device logged into two separate email accounts, so they were linked by cookie devices. Um, if I have this, if I use my phone number on two different Google accounts, that would be linked through a cookie phone number. If I have the email address linked as a secondary email on four different accounts, all of those accounts are linked through secondary emails. And people worry about Big Brother watching them. Yeah. Yeah, everything you do. I mean, and that's how with a lot of our cases we find out that, you know, we have this fake account, you know, it's now linked with their regular account. So we're able to now see that um, 
with things being linked together. Well, and that's you, you're just talking about that, Steve. I mean, if there was ever a reason where it was good from from a, an investigative standpoint, that's it. But it, that should let people know is as good as you think you are. Look, let's think about this. The Russians and the Chinese, they're state-sponsored espionage folks. Do you ever think about how we're able to track those folks back and act, specifically identify the agents who were involved in doing these hacks of government systems? Look, there is no such thing as anonymity on the internet anymore. It's just a fiction that people, you know, want to try and believe in because, and that's, I guess that's good for cops, but it's bad from a standpoint is that, look, like you're saying, Murph, everything you do is out there. It's just a matter of finding it. Well, and it's, you know, I've talked to you, Morgan, about my buddy out in Utah, you know, and I asked him, we, we did a, a little conference together here a couple of months ago. And I said, what do you view as the, as the largest threat uh, on, you know, associated with cybersecurity and so forth? And he said, TikTok. He said, the Chinese are, you know, they're using advanced intelligence with TikTok. Every little thing that we put in there that we think is so innocuous, they're using it and their computer systems, their algorithms are learning from all the information they're gathering from the Americas. Yeah, it's ridiculous what's going on. It's called a thousand grains of sand. That's their philosophy. They just gather a thousand grains of sand, and pretty soon they've got a, um, uh, you know, they start building this mosaic of what's going on. But again, we digress. Let us get back to our regularly scheduled podcast with our guest of honor. <laughs> um, but so, but that's interesting because it allows you to start linking these things. It's like a huge link chart, but electronically you start linking these dots together. So where are these dots leading, you know? It's kind of like a puzzle, putting each piece together and making sure that, you know, you meet the elements of the crime, which I know you know, here in the state of Georgia, I don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion, but I also want to make sure that I have the right person. Um, with, you know, her telling me that there were two Tezes, I needed to make sure that I knew which one performed which, you know, which criminal act. Um, I couldn't just go off of, you know, okay, well, they're both named Tez. They both did it. I had to be able to show each one separately um, and make sure that you know, when I did take, if this did go to trial, that all of our ducks were in a row, everything that I needed was right there. I had to be able to answer all these questions. Um, and I wanted to make sure I had the correct identity and could show, obviously, with her past, you know, her being um, involved in the court system several times. I wanted to make sure that I could show the validity of what she was telling me Um and prove, you know, she was telling the truth. Yeah, maybe her date was off slightly, but this is what she told me, and I was able to show, hey, this actually did happen. Or, you know, she told me she was down in Fort Valley, um, Montezuma area, and had sex with him. I was able to show that through cell phone records. Um, so there was so many things that had to go into play um, in proving that she was telling the truth and that, you know, so people would believe what it was. And it was just, it wasn't just what she it's was It's not saying. a he said, she said, you've actually got data, you've got uh, addresses, you've got locations that can actually back up her version of events. Yes. Actual physical evidence that a jury loves to see um, and say, hey, at this time, at this time, they matched up. This is what she said. Well, see, and that's the problem with television, too. It's the, called the CSI effect. It's like there were days back where you were able to testify yourself, and your testimony was evidence. But it's like, yeah, we get that, but where's the DNA? Or where's the fingerprints? Or where's the magic fairy dust that yeah. you sprinkle over everything, and it magically tells us, you know, who did it? I think t television has actually hurt the investigative process. 
And just like, you know, I, I, I'm off topic slightly, but I had a case where and initially the subject was unknown. Well, I was at a dealership and there was hundreds of cigarette butts on the ground near where the murder took place. And I collected all of them and all of the jury was like, well, why didn't you test all those? And I'm like, <laughs> I cannot test a hundred cigarette butts, especially when the guy is on camera in the stolen vehicle <laughs> with the gun. Like there's no point at that. I mean, there I, right. I can't waste those resources and I can't, I mean, it's not a 30 minute thing. And that's what's so hard to explain to them is what you see on TV is not reality. You know, I can't get a search warrant and within 20 minutes have the results back and be able to prosecute that case, you know, in 30 days. It's just not, it's unreal. So now that, see, we're talking about this cookie data. Now I'm hungry. I got to go make me some cookies. I got to go have the wife make me some chocolate chip cookies. You know, I need some cookies. But, but again, as we said, there's no, it's a fiction that there's anonymity on the internet, which is good from your standpoint. So I know that we're compressed for time because you have obligations. You actually have a real job. Murph and I don't. So we're going to work with your time constraints here. So, but let's, let's talk about how this, because your biggest thing is you don't know who Tez is. Is there one Tez or two Tez and which Tez, you know, did what? So, now we're getting into how long has this investigation been going on and what information do you get now that helps you now start identifying, you know, who is who? So luckily, as she was in the group home, she watched a documentary on Netflix and I can't remember what she called. I think it was just called Sex Trafficking. Um, and she said that actually opened up her eyes to what was happening to her um, to the point that she actually wrote a letter to him. Um, to, um, Tez. And during this whole time, she started making clarifications between the two Tezes. She said there was a Tez who initially introduced her and asked her about making fast money. And then Tez's brother, Tez, then came in a black Audi and picked her up. Um, me being me, I thought she was legitimately meeting his brother. Um, and so when I had Ahmed Cortez Clemens, I realized that he had a brother. I think he had three brothers. Um, one name was Marcavius Quantes Clemens. So I made the conne connection between Cortez and Quantes, both being Tezes. <clears throat> so I believe that he was the second Tez. Um, however, during this time, she um, wrote a letter to Tez, the one who drove the black Audi, Ahmed Cortez Clemens, um, and that she had mentioned that she had missed him and that she realized that her relationship with him was just strictly business, but she felt like um, she was wanted by him and that he was there to protect her and that what they had was a real relationship um, and that she wished that she had told him he, she was 14 However, in the very last interview, um, she told me that he knew that she was much younger because her older brother actually played baseball with Tez. So he knew that she was significantly younger from being at the ballpark. And um, Is that how the intro was made? Was through the brother? No, no. The brother had no idea. They actually, um, she went to a club called the Mom's Club um, and she went home with a friend one day 
from the club, and Tez and Tez were both there that day, so Tez and Cortez, um, when she woke up. And then that's when the interaction started of Tez saying, hey, do you want to make some fast money? And um, she was like, no, not really. And he said, well, I'm going to send my brother. He's going to pick you up tomorrow, so be ready. But now, you know, the one thing we call it a clue that I would have said bullshit on the brother because she's writing letters from what? the regional youth detention facility, not the adult correctional center, right? Yes. Yeah, so she was writing the letters from the group home, not the detention center. Oh, the group. But even then the group home is for, you know, for kids and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's just one yeah. of those things that they throw out there because they want to, Oh, I didn't know she was that young. Well, you must be blind, dude. We're going to revoke your driver's license because how did you not know? Yeah. And then also like during the whole thing, this is even before she made any disclosures of any kind of sex acts. Um, so she was like, you know, that she, she could have been killed, but by the grace of God, she was not. Um, she prays for him every day. She has PTSD and is having flashbacks from everything that occurred. Meanwhile, I'm sitting on the other side, like, obviously I was right. I know something happened, but you're not telling me anything that had happened. Um, and then she finally disclosed right after that, that, um, Cortez made her have sex with his friend for gas money. And she did because she was on the other side of town in Spald or in Griffin and that her cell phone was dead and she had no way to get home and she didn't want to walk home by herself um, across town. So she had sex with his friend. So I did have that, <clears throat> but I didn't have anything about, you know, any of the plays or the tricks or anything that was going there. Um, so anyways, so the case continued and I began to find Facebook records through search warrants where, um, the female from West Virginia was emailing Cortez pictures of the West Virginia ads that I had from Backpage. Um, and then he was using those ads, those ads essentially being identical to post, uh, JC. Um, so I started really making that connection um, and then she did finally disclose on the fourth interview um, that she played, um, uh, she said she had four to seven tricks that she played. Um, the first trick, it was a Scottish Inn in a hotel um, and that she got in a lot of trouble because she was first out the door and then the John followed her. So she, um, Cortez got very upset with her. Um, the second one, oh, and that she had sex, um, with a condom with that individual. The second one, there was one that she was going to go with a friend up to Atlanta. Um, and they had it set for two hours for two people. And as they were headed to Atlanta, things got a little sketchy. So they canceled that. Um, the actual second trick that she played was on the east side of town, um, where she did have sex with a ma another male. Um, and then the third trick was very interesting because it was on the west side of town. Um, it was a, and she vividly remembered this individual. Um, it was a male who had gold rim teeth. He performed oral sex on her and then spit inside her. And she remembered that because there was a guy in a wheelchair outside the house <coughs> when she walked into the house and she specifically remembered that incident. So, from there, she said that, you know, he then gave her $100 to get her hair and her nails done. He was providing the condoms to her. So then I finally had a case that, you know, I could make all of the connections to. So I went to the DA's office and was like, hey, 
here's what I've got. This is my plan. And they're like, oh, well, this individual is actually in jail right now um, for unrelated charges referencing narcotics. Um, So we then looked at the ID data and everything that I had had matched up with Ahmed Cortez Clemens. And how far down the road from the initial report you got um, I think it was back in April to where this happens. How how long of a time frame are you into this case now? February 2019. And so I'm bad at math. How about you? <laughs> how long are we talking about here? <laughs> Almost three years. Almost three years you stayed on this. Yes, I did have slight maternity leave in there too. <laughs> Which I'm sure that you still had a computer near you. I, I bet did. you were in the delivery room on your on your phone going, Hey, would you guys just do this for me real yes. quick? Do you did it? Admit it. When you were in the maternity room, you were on your phone still working the case. Probably. Oh, dude. <laughs> Even on vacation, that's not a denial. Even on vacation, I'm working like, and it's just one of those things, like I'm passionate about my job, so I, I can't just not do it. And there's always a kid involved. So I'm always doing my job. Well, we know, and that's thank God there are people like you, but you know, if you burn Absolutely. the candle at both ends, you burn out twice as fast. You are going to have to slow down at some point here, uh, yes. Trisha, right? You know, yes. but thank God. So let's, so this is almost three years into this now. So let's talk about how you finally are able to pull this case together, what it takes and what does it look like? Because now we got COVID is going to be approaching oh, yeah. us soon. You've got all of these other things happening. What happens? So, um, after discussing with the district attorney's office, we decided that we were going to take eight charges against Armed Cortez Clemens. We had aggravated child molestation, two counts child molestation, sodomy, human trafficking, pimping, enticing a child, and also um, sexual exploitation of children. Hey, real quick, because you said that, uh, you said sodomy and stuff, he also had sex with JC then, right? Yes, he had sex um, with her in his, her hometown one time, and she actually um, got an STD from him, she said. It's, it's not bad enough. And that was right before she went into RYDC. <clears throat> she didn't get to make her OB appointment because, or she didn't get to go to the OB appointment because she actually got um, put in RYDC, which they obviously helped her as well, but she couldn't fulfill right. her OB appointment. So you're putting this all together. Okay, okay, walk us through because at some point this has got to get to a preliminary hearing. You got to file, you know, for arrest yes. warrants, all that good stuff. I actually did not do arrest warrants. Um, the DA's office, we decided to just go ahead since he was already in jail to go ahead and push it through grand jury and just get him indicted on the charges. Just indicted, which by the way, is actually a fun way to do stuff, right? Because uh, Grand juries, except if you, unless you have a real stinker of a case, they always come back with a true bill. I mean, the old saying yeah, is you can indict much. a ham sandwich in a grand jury. Yeah, and yep. this one, truthfully, I mean, once I had the sex acts that occurred and was able to pinpoint the email address and the phone number and everything, um, and also link that her having sex with him down in his hometown based on her phone records, I, I knew it was a slam dunk. Did she testify at the grand jury? She did not testify at grand jury. However, um, during all of this, we did go to grand jury. Um, it was true build. We were good to go. He then, once he found out he had these charges, um, he then began making several jail phone calls. Um, he would make over 100 a day to different females, um, which was a key point in this because during his jail phone calls, um, he had made a comment that Tez was in jail with him. And that Tez should also stay in jail with him. 
Um, so then we started running all this information, and we learned that Tess's, Cortez's brother was not in jail. He didn't even have a criminal history. But there was another individual named Siantes Freeman who was in jail, um, who was very close with him, and he referenced him in several of the jail phone calls and jail letters. And I have where um, Cortez was sending letters to his baby mama saying, no, we need to keep her on our side. I can't have her testify against me um, and stuff like that. She flipped on us and decided that she was no longer going to cooperate. And that was, or excuse me, JC, was no longer going to cooperate because um, she was in love with him and he was promising her a house and getting married and all of this stuff. Um, so we had to play our cards right and, you know, keep her where she was for right now until just before trial, um, which is when the victim advocate, um, Denise Miller, she was phenomenal. She um, absolutely was very good with JC um, and staying in contact with her. Um, we actually played the jail phone calls for her right before trial, and she called him as soon as she left the DA's office and started cussing him out, saying, you did this to me. You picked me up in the black Audi. That was you. Also on that same phone call was JC's friend who went to or who was going to Atlanta, and she's also there um, saying that that was you. You took us up there. You were going to go do this for us. You set it up. Um, and we actually had her testify on trial, too. Um, so we he was offered um, several different plea offers, which he denied because he stuck with, I never did this. Hey, before you get to that, though, don't, don't these rocket scientists know that all jail phone calls are recorded, that all of this stuff is logged? <laughs> yes. I mean. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, rocket scientists. Yeah. So he decided that he wanted to go to trial, which we did. It was uh, three days. Um, it was right at think or right at um, Halloween, and JC actually testified, and it was. What was the turning point for JC? Was it listening to those calls of where he's basically using her as just property and saying, "Hey, you just got to keep her on her side." Yeah. Up until that point, had she did she have an underlying suspicion that he wasn't really into her the way that no. she thought he was? No, she thought he was in love with her. She she thought she was the only one. She thought that. They were going to be together forever. You hate to say that sounds like a common refrain, but that's that's almost the story of almost so many of these mm -hmm. cases, right? Yeah, it is. It is. People with uh, most of these victims have very low self esteem, mm -hmm. which is you know a, a prime target. And like I said, she was the prime victim. She had the lack of supervision. She didn't yeah. necessarily have that father figure or that love in the home, and he was showing her things that she wanted. When he was a manip master manipulator, yeah. he could do that, you know, to get her that. So I got a feeling, you know, I love trials like this. So three days. Three days. Victim testifies. JC testifies, which is always very powerful. Now that she knows what this SOB did. We were very nervous. We didn't know which way it was going to go when she actually saw him. Um, but over the jail phone calls before she flipped on him, he would tell her what she had to wear to come to visitation. He would tell her, like, when to call and stuff like that. So we were really nervous that when she actually saw him in person, what would happen. Um, and she, she's a little feisty. So we were hoping that she could contain her emotions and be able to portray 
her story without being aggressive. Um, and she did a phenomenal job. Um, her dad also came and testified, which was great because when you look at the pictures, she didn't necessarily look like she was 14. Um, but having him there saying that this is my 14 year old daughter really hit home with a lot of jurors. And did the dad, did you get the dad to testify too about him meeting people at these hotels? (laughs) He did. And he was like, I was just a dad. I didn't know what to do. Like, and he even made the comment. It wasn't that we thought law enforcement wasn't doing their job. It was just her phone was ringing off the hook. And I. Well, but that's the point I was trying to make right there is that he's responding to this because the phone is ringing off the hook. This isn't just a girl having conversations with her other teenage friends. This is somebody who somebody's answering ads on Backpage attempting to have sex with somebody they know is 14 Correct. years old. Um, and then the friend who actually was involved with going to Atlanta. She was also there to testify um, to reiterate and show that he was the one that set all this up. He drove them. He was in the black Audi. That was his car. Um, So that was really good. And then I testified and um, the defense attorney was trying to prove that I was saying that it was Cortez's brother, legitimate brother, not Siantes. Um, And so that was going to be their whole route is that all of this is made up um, and she's making this up because of my misunderstanding or I guess like trying to make that connection, you know, Um, but I was able to articulate why I thought it was this brother and based on all the information, why we learned later on that it was. And, you know, obviously I can't go back and change my report because that's, it, 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 that's what I thought back then. And that's what I had, but I had to articulate, you know, why. Um, and actually during trial, she testified that Siantes Freeman was the second defendant who initiated the human trafficking, who initiated making the fast money, which was the first time she had ever told me that name. Um, so immediately I was like, okay, let's figure out who this guy is. Let's IDM. Let's get this ball rolling. Let me make this connection, which we were able to later on. Um, We were really worried um, what the jury would think, looking at her, seeing her, um, looking at her history and stuff like that. Um, However, with the expert testimony, um, we were able to show, you know, that's the cycle of these victims. You know, they believe that they're in love. They don't want to always tell the truth. It does take several interviews. There's not just one interview. Um, So we were unsure what the jury would do. We thought we had a great case, but again, it's a jury. You just don't know. Um, So we were dismissed. They went back. We were upstairs no longer than 20 minutes. We came back down and they already had a verdict. Well, and let me tell you, here's a clue for the folks listening in. When it takes longer to pick the four person of the jury than it does to render a verdict, dude, you are screwed. (laughs) That's a pretty slam dunk case. (laughs) Yeah. So they came back and found him guilty on all charges. Um, He was uh, the judge. We did sentencing right after. And when you say found him guilty, let's clear up the Tez's right. So the first one. Who is found guilty? Uh, Ahmed Cortez Clemens was found guilty um, of the ag child molestation, child molestation, sodomy, human trafficking, pimping, computer pornography, um, and I believe that was all of them. 
But yeah, he was found guilty on all charges and um, some of them would merge together. Um, and the judge asked him and said, you know, do you have to say anything? And I will tell you the entire time during trial, he was laughing. He always had a smirk on his face and showed absolutely no remorse for what had happened. Why did he think he was going to get yes. off? Did he think that they weren't going to be able to, did he think that JC was going to come in <laughs> yes. and flip and uh, not testify? Yes, he even said that on jail phone calls during the trial that he's, he's not going to be found guilty that this is all just made up. Um, and so the judge asked him like, Hey, what, what do you have to say? And he smirked and he didn't say anything. And the judge was like, are you not going to say you're sorry? And he didn't say sorry. And the judge was like, you know, this is your judge was like, hold my beer. Here comes he the same. Like, yeah, baby. This is your chance. And he literally said nothing. Um, and his attorney even told him that he needed to stop smirking because he was kind of smiling. Um, so the judge and what did the smirk? What did the smirk get the smirker? Uh, yeah. Life in prison plus thirty years on probation. Yeah, um, baby. Sex offender registry and banishment from the judicial circuit, which is the five count, which is five counties. Which means even yeah. if he were to able to ever get out, he could not live within that five county area. And he cannot drive through. If he drives through and he gets in trouble, then he goes back to jail. Well, let's just hope he never gets out of freaking prison. Well, yeah. What What are the chances? I don't. What's the probation parole system like down there? What are the chances that this dude can make it out of prison before he uh, assumes room temperature? So I think he has to serve twenty five years is the considered the life sentence. So at this time he's like twenty eight. So he'll get out when he's like fifty something, maybe. Maybe if he gets out, but of course, hopefully, who's ever on the parole board then will look at what his attitude was, what his conduct was during trial and stuff, and say, "Hey, look, you're not fit to be out in front of society again." Yep, and he'll have to register as a sex offender. Um, so that's also a good thing that he'll always be on our radar. Um, and if it ever happens again, which, I mean, well, you hope to be retired by then, right? Yeah. I, I better be. <laughs> hey, well, there is kind of a good thing that came out of this. I mean, JC, uh, just give us a quick uh, thumbnail of JC, like how she's doing now and your relationship with her. Well, with the other defendant real quick, because we oh, were yeah, able to. Oh, yeah, that's right. Siantes yeah. Freeman. Yeah. So since we were able to ID him during trial, um, I immediately turned around and took arrest warrants for him. Now, he had two less or two less charges, I believe, than um Ahmed did or Ahmed Cortez because he didn't, he was not involved with the having sex during um, like the friend for gas money. Um, and he was like the before thing, the before person introducing her. Um, however, so I took arrest warrants in November and December, just before Christmas, um, he was arrested for shoplifting. Um, and he had kind of been on the run because we were trying to locate him and could never find him. Um, he got arrested for shoplifting at Walmart um, and was then held on my charges. Um, and he wanted to go to trial until um, didn't he? he didn't wrote, he? Didn't he? Didn't he read the damn paper to see this is what happened to your buddy? This is what happened to the other Tevs. Mm -hmm. So he actually <laughs> took a plea. Luckily, um, he pled to one count of child molestation. He was sentenced to twenty years, served ten. Um, banishment from the judicial circuit, which means he can no longer um, reside where he was with his children. And he actually had two daughters um, and he has to register as a sex offender. He had two daughters and he's still doing this. 
I know. Just scuzz back. Oh, and my gosh. And they both had um, a gang affiliation. However, um, we were never able to prove the gang nexus, so we could not. Had you been able to prove the gang nexus, would that have been an enhancement on the sentencing? Yes. But we couldn't find anything that matched up. They were probably just putting that word out there, and they really weren't affiliated, thinking they'd make them look more like a badass. Oh, no, they were really affiliated. We actually had a case. Um, Griffin PD actually had a case on Siantes as being a, in a gang. Okay. Well, hey, look, here's the good news is we got two people doing time. They should have done a mm -hmm. lot more. What has happened with our victim? So she is a mom now, um, not any of the other, not through any of the subjects, but she is a mom. She's a single mom. Um, she's working at a warehouse and she has good days and bad days. Um, but we do keep in touch and I do keep, she definitely keeps in touch with the victim advocate and the prosecutor, the two prosecutors on the case did a phenomenal job of building that rapport with her, um, and going through. Fantastic. But yeah, she's That's doing a, pretty good. And this is why. In 2021, Trisha Cannon, special agent with the Child Exploitation and Computer Crimes Unit, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, was awarded by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Kids to be one of the heroes of 2021. And it's obvious why they did that, because this is the audience can't see this, our players can't, but this is us saluting you, saying, you know, what an awesome job you did. And boy, would I love to have you working on any case that I would have ever been involved with. The thing I'd be most yep. afraid of is I don't want to ever piss you off because you'd never forget it. You'd be on me like white on <laughs> rice for the next, you know, 30 years. I remember there's one thing Trisha Cannon is, as you have to refer to yourself as the third person, the S.A. Cannon is, is persistent. Yes. I never left her side. And even at trial, she was like, you told me you weren't leaving. I said, nope. And I still won't. <laughs> I'm still here. So what's next for you? What we're, um, you can't work this forever because it just, it destroys you uh, at, at some point. I have to think it has to destroy you inside. Is that how much longer can you work something yeah. like this before it's like, say, I've, I've got to move on. Truthfully, I don't know that I will ever leave the unit. I love this unit. I love the work that I do. Yes. It's extremely overwhelming and there's never a dead end. Um, but I want to be a voice for children, and I want to, even if I don't have the interaction for them, every time a picture or image or video is shared, um, that child is being victimized. And if I can take one person off the street from viewing that one video or image, um, then that's fine. But working with kids and doing this job is my passion, <clears throat> and it were full, I, I don't see that ever changing um, anytime soon, and this this is where I want to be. Outstanding. You know, God bless you, Tricia, for, you know, giving you the capacity, especially the emotional capacity to deal with the crimes that you're dealing with. Uh, just pr so proud of what you're doing. Keep up the great job. And I just wanted to mention, I did notice those red and black fingernails, which are the Georgia They're colors. Pink from Key West. <laughs> oh, oh sorry, sorry. That's why we don't let Murphy <laughs> drive anymore. He can't a, see. Yeah. I'm trying to give you credit for being a dogs fan. Come no. on, man. I'm not really big into college football. I'm more of like Oh, you can't NFL. say that on this podcast. Don't You're in Georgia. I'm a Redskins fan. I was born when they won the Super Bowl, so the Redskins have my heart. Well, I guess the Washington team now. Well, which is right down the road from us here. You're in the SEC. You'll get you'll get you get ostracized for saying things like that down there. I know, and they're all about college football down here. 
Yeah, you think you got hate mail <laughs> before. Wait till this comes out. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, we won't disclose where S.A. Cannon lives or, well, you already know where she works. That's right. So, hey, well, look, I, right. I know that we said we only had you for a short time, and this is normally shorter than some of our episodes, but I'll tell you how proud we are to have folks like you doing this kind of Absolutely. work. It takes a toll on you. And the fact that you say that you want to keep doing this. You know, hey, just God bless you guys and the work that you guys are doing down there. And uh, I know Thank it's you. it's good. It's it's not going to get any better. That's the sad part about it, right? It's it just seems no. like it's going to get worse. It will. You're here in our eyes. Thank you. Thank and, you. Thank you. Well, we're going to send you a bottle of your favorite liquor so that you can get over this last weekend. <laughs> it's probably like you who or something like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. She doesn't drink. Because she's such a goody two-shoes. You know, I never did. <laughs> what, what is your favorite drink? Um, So I'm really, I like rum. Rum's my favorite. Rum's your favorite. Well, you were just down in Key West, so I assume you had a little bit of rum while you were down there. A lot. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know your parents are listening to this. Be careful what that, you that's say. That's okay. I actually shared um, a voodoo juice with my dad from one of the restaurants. and it was There you go. Good. There you go. Voodoo a juice. Bucket. <laughs> All right. Last thing. You get the last word. What's the one thing you want parents to What's the? What's your biggest piece of advice for parents? If your kid's going to have a cell phone and have a social media application, do you have it too? Know it. Know every app that your kid is on. Know how it works. Know who they're communicating with. And at this point, there is no privacy um, because everything comes back to you. Nothing comes back to the kids. Some of the best advice you're ever going to get off a game of crimes. Holy cow. That right from the horse's mouth there. Fantastic. Other than the other best piece of advice is make sure you listen to Game of Crimes so you can hear awesome stories like this. All right. So. Trisha, you got to get going. We know we, we kept you longer than we were supposed to, but you were so worried about this podcast going great. We This is awesome. We could have kept doing this for another two hours. Hey, so everybody stay tuned. The debrief is coming next. What do we tell you, Steve? Absolutely. Freaking hero did did she repel down buildings you know wear swat gear and kicking guys there there's heroes come in all shapes and sizes and trisha is when she said that she is she's so passionate about kids you could tell it comes across in her voice but more importantly steve it came across in her dedication and her actions and this piece of shit is going to be on the inside looking out hopefully for the rest of his natural freaking life. Absolutely. He's earned everything he got. You know, his attitude when the judge sentenced him gave him an opportunity to accept responsibility or at least apologize to this particular girl, although there were many other victims, and he just stands there with a shit-eating grin on his face. Well, here, smile now in there, Buckwheat, when you're in the prison. See how that goes for you. Yeah, uh, Trish, yeah, Homer. <laughs> yeah, Trish, just so, so happy, uh, proud of you for what you did there. You're, you're leading the way. You're setting the example. And I loved her background story. A pitcher in softball that can pitch in the 60-mile-an-hour range. 63-mile-an-hour. <laughs> like I said, she, she's got a future, you know, like with Peyton and Eli Manning throwing footballs. Hey, hold on, sucker. Yeah. You know, instead yeah. of a taser. Softball, softball, softball. Right, Whack. To, the, right to the back of the head. <laughs> to the back of the head. Well, she is our latest hero. And guys, it was well worth this episode. And guess what? She's still on duty. We had to get clearance from the uh, public information officer for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. So we want to say thank you to those folks for letting Trisha come on, Trisha, come on and tell her story. That was awesome. But if you think that's awesome, we've got a good one coming up. 
uh, let me let's hang on. Let's talk about it at the very end because this is when you had Steve. But anyway, okay. if you love that episode, which we know you did. Help us earn those five stars. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Hit that five stars. It's magic. It truly is. And this being the Christmas season, five stars not only gets you our undying gratitude, it gets you on December 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern mm-hmm. on Facebook.com slash Game of Crimes podcast, a free Patreon narcometer review of the greatest Christmas movie ever made. Did Die I say hard. that enough, Steve? Die, Die hard. hard. Die hard. That's right. <laughs> also head on over to GameofCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. You know, we're constantly updating it. Follow us on the social media, Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and Game of Crimes Podcast on the Instagram. Throw something over the wall if you want to, paypal.com. Use our email, Podcast at gmail.com, or paypal.me slash Crimes. whatever it makes it easier for you. But again, you got to head on over to Patreon. We have so much great content. In addition to this, we've got several episodes coming out. You know, people are getting engaged in this. We've got so much fun going on. And I'll tell you, Steve, this next episode, because, uh, you know, this one we're able to schedule and know which one's coming out next. This is one you helped set up. And man, let me tell you, if nothing else, the first 45 minutes is going to just blow you away. It is. <clears throat> you know, this is a dear friend of mine. Sherry Foster, retired DEA agent, who was formerly a GBI special agent. Before that was a Winder, Georgia police officer, uniformed police officer. I've known Sherry and her husband, JP, for years and years and years. I met JP when I was an agent in Miami, and you'll hear that story. Uh, But her initial story, like you said, that first 45 minutes or so, I had no idea. It's the first time I've ever heard this. You've known her for years, and you didn't even know this. Her attitude, she is one of the most bubbly, funniest people you ever meet in your life. Never, you know, if I was thinking about people that might have gone through a rough childhood, I would have never thought Sherry Foster would be one of those. She's raw in her interview. She doesn't hold back. You're going to hear things that if it doesn't bring a tear to your eye, you know, at least uh, tug at your heartstrings, you're a cold son of a bitch. Because what she went through, nobody (laughs) should go through. But that's Yeah, you're a cold son of a bitch unless you're in Florida or the humidity is 95%. So, but you know, you're right, man. If this doesn't tug at the heartstrings, even if you don't shed a tear, if you just don't choke up a little bit and go, man, if if you think you have it bad, wait till you hear her. And then she's going to tell you, well, I thought I had it bad until I heard it. I mean, yeah. total, just the complete package from dedication, perseverance. And this is why you want people like this in right. law enforcement. And, and this is the cool thing about Sherry's story, not to waste a lot of time on it, because I want you to listen to the podcast, because it is motivational. But she didn't let her circumstances overwhelm her future. She took control of her future. And just wait. I mean, it's it's so motivating. It's like listening to Claudia Apollino again's story. I'm, I'm proud of her. I'm so proud of Sherry. I'm proud of all the people we bring on here. The, Absolutely. The circumstances they go through, life and death situations, and they choose life. And guess what else she chose? She chose to come on the podcast, and now we're going to hold her accountable because she's working on a book. So you're going to have to hear about that oh, yeah. and what we hold her accountable for when this comes out. So, hey, everybody, thank you guys for listening. Again, we want to thank all of you players out there for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. Crimes.